0: Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for Curious Minds on KGRA Radio, and here is your host, Gary Cocciolillo.
1: Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cocciolillo, and today we have Sam Turode. He is the author of many books on all sorts of topics from stoicism to the dirty parts of the bible thank you for being on the show today
2: thanks, thanks gary great to meet you
1: you too uh so you've written on a lot of really interesting uh topics um um like what will start out with the dirty parts of the bible and <laughs> that's uh as <laughs> a uh a, a title that um Definitely caught my attention. Uh, (laughs) What's that one about?
2: That is my only novel, actually, my only fictional story. And it was, I started writing it in my mid-20s. And I had always, I grew up hearing stories of my grandparents and their life in Texas in the 1920s and 30s. And I had always wanted to do something with that, something in that setting. And then finally came up with, uh, with this particular idea. And it's a story of a preacher's son named Tobias. And his, he ends up having to take a journey across America during the Depression. So it's an adventure story. There's a romance in the second half. But the, the title has to do with the Song of Solomon and just his recollections of being a kid in church and discovering the Song of Solomon. So that's a universal experience, I'd say, of Baptist kids such as myself, too. Mm-hmm. So that's where the that's where the title comes from.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, the song the Song of Solomon is uh, quite an interesting read.
2: Yeah, and actually when I when I was writing the novel, then I started researching the the biblical book and ended up writing a serious nonfiction book about the Song of Solomon after finishing the novel so a lot of a fascinating history with uh, that biblical book
1: and and how does that sort of tie into some of your other books that are uh, you know based around like a lot of the works of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Stoicism and stuff like that
2: yeah I'd say I've I follow whatever I'm interested in and my interests have changed over time and every person also has a lot of facets so I've Always been interested in humor. Grew up watching the, the Three Stooges and Charlotte Chaplin, Little Rascals. So I've always loved those old comedies. Mm-hmm. But then I also grew up in church uh, studying the Bible in a, in a church where we would go three times a week and hear serious Bible study. And that's probably where my interest in philosophy and religion and mythology Began, oddly enough, as being presented with these stories and uh, expected to take them at face value and believe them literally, which I ultimately wasn't able to do once I reached my 20s. Right. Uh,
1: One of your other books, The Living Soul, uh, The Seven Spiritual Principles of Ralph Waldo Emerson. What are those seven uh, spiritual principles?
2: Luckily, I've got the book (laughs) right in front of me. (laughs) It's uh, the the first is trust yourself, Mm -hmm. which is about about that the guidance and wisdom we need in life is is really inside us, and you know we we're always looking for it outside us, and then find that the answer is within. Sort of the the Wizard of Oz principle. the The second is as you sow, you will reap. And for for Ralph Waldo Emerson, all morality, he would say, boils down to as you reap, you will, as you sow, you will reap. And also then the the golden rule to Mm -hmm. do do unto others as you would have them do unto you.
1: Right. Karma.
2: Right. And he recognized this as something found in all religions. It's not, uh, and something we find within ourselves. It doesn't depend on a particular Religious figure having right. said it to be true. Yeah,
1: it's definitely something that, well, at least most of us are born with. Not everyone, I don't think, but most mm-hmm.
2: of us. Right, right. There are definitely some some deviant people or with uh, certain problems that that distort the conscience. Um, and the Emerson's third principle then is nothing outside you can harm you, and. And that he was influenced by the Stoics, and I've also had a strong interest in Stoicism. Mm -hmm. So the the idea that outside events that happen to us don't matter as much as how we interpret them and and respond to them.
1: Interesting. That's something that I I definitely um, agree with also. I I like that because... when you realize, have that type of realization, you can kind of go through life um, pretty much fearlessly.
2: There was something I came to after an unexpected divorce hit me. Mm-hmm. This was over, over 10 years ago. But so here was a major thing happening to me. And I could have gone the way I've seen some go of, of sort of blame, uh, blaming blaming, others and taking on a victim mentality that sort of, oh, what well, was me? This has befallen me. So what I got from reading Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus was that we have to focus on what's within our control. Like, okay, this this is happening. Now what can I do? How can I respond to it? What's the best way to move forward? So that's when my interest in stoicism began. All
1: right, and, and when it happens, actually, I mean, we're only limited to a couple of choices anyway on how we can react to a situation, which usually comes down to either act or don't act. Mm-hmm.
2: But our, definitely the tendency is to just worry about it, mm-hmm. worry about it all day, <laughs> and. Things that are outside our control, like uh, in, in the past year, there's been a lot of that politically or things completely outside our control politically. I'll still find myself worrying about and have to continually remind myself to focus on what's within my own power to affect.
1: Oh, yeah. Worry. Worry doesn't mm-hmm. really accomplish much, does it?
2: No. <laughs> it's but counterproductive. It's, uh, it seems to be a natural phenomenon, though. It's, it takes effort to avoid it <laughs> and to work on overcoming it.
1: Right. Uh, I sometimes wonder, like, why that's even a part of human nature mm. to worry. Like, yeah. I know, like, maybe part of it's there to protect us, you know, from potential hazards and stuff. Um, but but why are we worried about things that we know we can't control? You know, we can't prepare right. for them. We can't control. them. All I can do is deal with them in the moment.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it comes with being able to to grasp the time, to see the, to look back on the past, and to make guesses about the future. That's a power we humans have, and with it arises this fear. And I, I would say fear is my number one enemy in life. Probably, it's probably true for all of us that fear is our greatest challenge that we face.
1: Correct. Um, So what is the fifth principle?
2: Let's see. We're actually at number four, Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: it is the universe is inside you. The world around you is a reflection of the world within you. So here Emerson wrote quite a bit about the, the correspondence between things we observe, and especially in nature, and the workings of our own mind. And science was very important to him, for instance. He thought that the more we learn, the more we study things scientifically, the more we learn about nature, the more we learn about ourselves.
1: Interesting. Has has that proven to be true?
2: You know, I'd have to go back and and reread the chapter of the book to be (laughs) able to to explain it completely. Mm -hmm. But certainly... uh, you know, he said the ancient Greek. Uh, the ancient Greek said, "Know thyself," and he and he said that modern science says, "Know nature," and for him, these were ultimately the same quest. That the more we study about nature, the more we learn about ourselves.
1: Great. And What's the fifth one?
2: Then it is identify with the infinite. Center your identity on the soul and your life's purpose will unfold. So with this, it's where our tendency is to identify with our physical body or the things we like and dislike, you know, to center our life on those things. And when those are challenged, when problems arise in those areas, then we feel our whole identity has been shaken. So what Emerson said is think of, Think of your soul, your core essence as the real and fundamental part of you. And when you identify with that, then you you won't be shaken mm-hmm. when when other aspects of you experience challenges and problems.
1: That, that always raises me quite questions in my mind, like what is the soul?
3: Hmm.
2: Yeah, and uh and it's certainly a profound question. And for Emerson, he, he recognized, you know, each individual has a core essence, which could be called the, the individual soul. But for him, what was more important was the universal soul, that we are, all, we are all connected, you know, every all humans and also all of nature is really united in one spiritual source, which the the physical world is an expression a manifestation of this spiritual source and that is the the universal soul so really for for emerson and the view that i've come to appreciate and accept is that the soul encompasses everything and uh, the physical world is an expression of it we can see it in our we can see how it works in our individual lives that you know, our activities, the, the things we do with our bodies and enjoy come from a, a motivation that is invisible, it comes from our, our soul. You know, even in music, there's the term soul music, where when, when a singer is really expressing their core essence and emotions and their humanity, we say, ah, that's a, that singer has soul. So that's on the individual level, and then for for Emerson, it's also universal that everything in the world is an expression of love, spirit ultimately.
1: Um, would he maybe think of his spirit sort of just as as energy?
2: Yes, I think that I think that is a good analogy, and that's in in my books. I try to explain in things in a way that can apply that that people can understand whether they're atheists or, you you know, if they're coming at it from a secular atheist perspective, I want to explain it in a way that they can understand. And I think saying everything is ultimately energy is the best way to do that. Because, you know, quantum physics has shown that as you try to reduce matter to smaller and smaller particles, you don't come down to Finally, the little hard ball of matter that's the building block. Um, what they've found is that it comes down to energy and potential even in quantum physics, and that the source of physical matter is something we can't define and neatly put in the box.
1: Wow, um, I don't even, I've never read Ralph Ralph so. I don't even know what time period he was writing in.
2: What was it? In the mid 1800s, he was born in 1803. Mm-hmm. So Thomas Jefferson was the president when he was born. He died in, the, uh, I believe it was 1878. So he, his life stretched from the era of the founding fathers through mm-hmm. the Civil War. So really the seminal period for America. And most of his writing and lecturing was done in the 1830s through the 1860s.
1: So that's some pretty profound stuff for that time.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think we, he was really the first important American philosopher. And I, you know, I think I would like him and resonate with his ideas, even if he wasn't an important figure in American literary history. But it's a nice, it's a wonderful thing that he happens to be taught in a lot of high schools and colleges. And yeah, it's because he was the the first important American philosopher. Before him, you had the founding fathers who were political philosophers. But the, the first person, and you also had theologians like Jonathan Edwards, considered an important Calvinist theologian. But Emerson was the first American to really make a mark in philosophy, thinking about thought and ideas and the, the nature of reality.
1: Interesting. And what was the, uh, what's the uh, next, uh, was it the last one, the last principle?
2: Well, Let's see. We've got two more. Okay. <laughs> We've got num- <laughs> number six is to live in the present. Uh, so
1: he, he focusing,
2: focusing on the present moment yes and emerson was he was very influenced by eastern philosophy as well as stoicism which and those those two also focus a lot on the present moment that that's where your power is
1: Absolutely. and, and what's the last
2: one it is to seek god within that the highest revelation is the divinity of the soul so he he was a opposed to the religion of his day, which was about seeking God in, in the Bible or in prophets, whether Jesus or or anyone else. And, you know, always there's a tendency, it seems, for people to project divinity onto some being or book to say that they are the perfect being or book and that that they are God. And Emerson said, rather than searching outside you you need to look within and discover the the spark of the soul within and that is the spark of divinity
1: i have a bumper sticker that says inquire within
2: Mm. do you think that that for me was i'll say that personally for Mm -hmm. me was a was a big thing i've learned from emerson and what drew me to him was i had been I grew up a fundamentalist Christian and in my 20s or late teens, when I got to college, I started to to see problems with that and begin to grow beyond this this view. I ended up joining the Eastern Orthodox Church Mm -hmm. for for several years. And, And I had heard this idea, you know, I had heard the idea that, that God is within each of us, but it seemed blasphemous (laughs) to my younger self. And I was certainly taught, you know, this is a, (laughs) this is a horrible, evil, evil idea. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point of maturity in my thirties, I finally realized that, oh, now I, now I see what they're getting at when they say God is within. It doesn't mean that I am God. I am the all powerful. It means that every person and indeed all of nature and creation is an expression of the universal spirit. Wow.
1: Um, And then you wrote um, like sort of like a a second book on this, correct?
2: Yeah. After I I wrote living from the soul last, mostly last fall and winter, it came out in January of
3: 2020.
2: Mm -hmm. And then I, I did a follow-up book on Emerson's uh, view of the mind. So, I, the first book covers the soul; the second covers the mind. And for, for Emerson, that was that became in his more mature years, his later years, his strongest interest was in trying to establish a science of mind. And this was, you know, before modern psychology. anything like that. So he was one of the first people to lay the groundwork for psychology and studying the mind and the power of thought.
1: Was he familiar with like religions like Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism?
2: Yes. And he was one of the first Americans to, to read the scriptures of the Eastern religions. He and uh, Thoreau also were two of the first. I be- and I believe that Thoreau could learn to read uh, Sanskrit, but with Emerson, he would read German translations of uh, Hindu and Buddhist works.
1: Uh, you know, I, I often forget that at that time, those, things, those texts weren't even in English.
2: <laughs> right,
1: yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just... Yeah, and em-
2: Emerson, Emerson was also, a, I believe, the first person to translate some of the poems of Hafiz, into English. Hmm. So the, the Sufi poets who are very popular today, he was one of the first to be aware of them in, in America, at least.
1: Oh, wow. So he was probably like reading like Rumi.
2: Yeah, yeah, I believe so. So this, the second book is called Secrets of the Mind. Mm-hmm. Ralph Waldo Emerson's Keys to Expansive Mental Powers. So the focus is on his, his writings and lectures about the power of thought, the importance of thought and thinking and how this shapes our lives. And I, he was really the, the founder of what became known as the new, new thought movement. Are you familiar with that?
1: A little bit. Um, I'd love for you to talk about it a little bit.
2: Sure. So in the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, you had authors like a, uh, Ralph Waldo Trine was one, someone named after Ralph Waldo Emerson. James Allen was a philosopher in England. Florence Scovel Shin was an American woman. And there were a lot of men and women at this time who became excited about the idea of the power of thought in shaping our lives. It was something that really hadn't been written about or thought much about, ironically, previously so this idea that that we can reshape our lives through through the power of thought by changing our thinking mm-hmm. And then this and from the, the new thought movement this comes down to us today in a lot of self-help books you know I'm sure you've heard of such as the Secret
3: right.
2: by uh, Ron, Rhonda Byrne, that book about the power of visualization, using techniques to shape your thoughts, like visualization and affirmations and such. So a lot of modern self-help really is is expanding on Emerson's work. It really traces back to him. He was, I I think, the first person to use the phrase self-help. He wrote about the the self-helping man was the phrase he used. And I think that's where where we get that phrase.
1: So, you know, one of the things I think, like with books like The Secret, um, is at least at least with that particular book, anyway, she only gives half the secret.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. I think there's another half that she kind of neglects. Would you agree, or would you disagree with
2: yes. that? Yes, yes, I. I think with that book, there's not enough focus on action. Exactly. There's sort of the, the idea that if we daydream about something, then it will, it will manifest in our mm-hmm. lives. Where the, the, the real secret, I think, is, is becoming clear on what you want mm-hmm. and creating a plan of what you're going to do to bring mm-hmm. that about. So these, these are mental things and it's, it's the power of thought and in, in becoming clear on what we want and creating that plan mm-hmm. and building our self-confidence too. That's a huge, huge part of it is overcoming negative thoughts, you know? And so then, then, it, then it's taking action in order to manifest things in our life. So I think a, a weakness of the secret and some of these other books is over-promising. Yes, yes.
1: And I feel the same way too. Like I think you know, thinking and visualizing and conceptualizing and coming up with a plan sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's like putting energy into a capacitor, you know. Mm-hmm. But but then once it's there, you have to kind of release it, which is that action to make it actually manifest. And otherwise it's just going right. to sit there and, and just eventually just become depleted again.
2: Right? Yeah, and this is also some... I started getting into these ideas and reading about what could be called mind power also around the time of going through divorce because that was the first time when my... I would say up to that point, I used to enjoy just uh, sort of taking a vacation into my mind and thinking and daydreaming all the time. Mm -hmm. It was a pleasant activity most of my life. But then when my when I experienced all this stress in my external world, that was the first time where my mind became a scary place. (laughs) There was a lot of, a a lot of, right. A lot of worry, a lot of fear, a lot of negative thoughts and doomsday spirals. And it was really becoming aware of that. Then I started looking around and thinking, what's, what's the antidote? How can I, build up positive thoughts and mm-hmm. as as I learned about these ideas and even some of the some of the ideas were loosely calling the secret of of visualizing and planning things first I noticed how I had done that throughout my life and I think anyone who achieves anything anyone who succeeds or completes a project when they look back they'll, they'll notice yeah first I had the idea the inspiration and motivation. And then I, I made a plan. I expected it to, to come through. And then I took action. Mm-hmm. So often it, often this works unconsciously with people. And then at that time in my life, then because of a lot of mental struggles, that's when it became a conscious process for me. And I realized, okay, I need to consciously focus on things like, visual like writing goals and visualizing how i want how i want my life to be uh focusing on the kind of emotions i want to bring into my life and meditating and feeling those emotions and and then i do believe that as you as you focus on and work on your interior world it does then begin to manifest and affect in your outer world
3: Mm.
1: Um, before we you before even do that, I think sometimes there's also something that's overlooked, which is being able to control our minds rather than us being controlled by our minds. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know for me, my own experience, you know, especially when I was younger, you know, um, my mind was just all over the place. And, and I just believed it, you know, I believed everything I thought and acted on it. And mm-hmm. as I've gotten older, and and especially like after learning how to practice meditation, you know, mm-hmm. I, I learned that most, you know, nothing I really think is real or, you know, and, and therefore mm-hmm. it doesn't, I don't even really need to act on it. In fact, it, it's more important to um, learn how to put that stuff at bay and actually kind of focus on the things that are going to be beneficial. Mm-hmm. It,
2: yeah, and that's that's an interesting thing, thing you just said about uh, about thoughts not being real. I, I would have to put a lot more thought into that to decide what I whether I agree with that idea or not. but certainly, um a lot of fearful and, and negative thoughts that fill our head we mm-hmm. tend to just accept them as they come at us and that's a that's a dangerous thing we need to to meditate and be able to evaluate our thoughts better
1: right or maybe like my maybe even re- being real isn't the right word maybe it's just mm-hmm. um i just don't have to act on them mm-hmm. yeah you know, i mean I don't even know where most of my thoughts come from or why I have them. And I think this has to be true with most people. Um,
2: Yeah. That's a, and that's an interesting question. I would say some, I would say our best thoughts come from what Emerson calls the soul. So I, when, when we have our best thoughts, yeah, I, I would call that my soul voice. You know, when I, when I have an inspiration or hear something that really resonates with me, that feels like I, I am expressing my essence in this thought, I would call that my soul voice. Mm-hmm. Then there, then there's what might be called the ego voice, which is the fe- which for me when I have those fearful and worrying thoughts, I would say those are coming from my ego.
1: Right, the worry. I was actually um interviewing uh, two psych- psychiat psychologists yesterday and uh, the topic of worry came up and um you know it's not it's not that's you know it's it's just there like um I don't know it's it's
2: just a weird thing uh when did when did you get into meditation I got or
1: into meditation. I don't know, it was about twenty years ago, probably when I hit around thirty. Um, uh-huh. but, and, and up until then, like my life was pretty rough, and, and it was a bit like yours. You know, I went through a, a divorce; it it totally devastated me. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, like after that, for, for for a few years, you know, all I was seeking was basically escape. You know, I I mm-hmm. just wanted instant gratification and pleasure to forget about how much pain I was in. Or sometimes I just wanted to die and (laughs) just be over with the shit. (laughs) I'm like, I'm done. I just want out. This is it. And um, and And I know that feeling. (laughs) And then I read a book called um, How to See Yourself as You Really Are by the Dalai Lama. And it really resonated with me. So I said, you know what, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give uh, this meditation stuff a try. And I found a local Buddhist sangha near where I lived, and, and I started meditating. And it just clicked with me, like, right away. Like, I was like, oh, this is it. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't have to be dragged through the mud by all this negativity in my mind. I can just observe it and let it go. I don't have to fight it off because that was like another thing too, is I found the more I, I tried to fight against those thoughts, the harder they fought back. And I was like I was just constantly at war with myself, which really, really sucks um, for I don't know if you ever experienced it, but it was just horrible. But when I learned to sit back and just observe it and let it go, it was just a real, real so,
2: relief. Yeah. So the meditation clicked with you right away. You said, "Yeah, I'd say it's been more of a, a lot of fits and starts for me <laughs> getting into meditation. I've I've tried different methods, and I'll I'll enjoy a method for a while, then it will taper off, and I'll get interested in a new technique. Wow. But it's certainly it's definitely been beneficial for me as well."
1: Yeah, I don't think it matters what technique you use. I think it's good to try different techniques and sometimes even switch techniques up. Um, it just mm-hmm. keeps it fresh. I don't see any harm in there. Um, but but I know, like, like for me, like, the one thing that I, you know, you always hear people say, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't, I just can't sit and be silent for a long period of time, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I know for me, it was just easy. As soon as I sat, and just focused on my breath. I was like, man, I I could easily just do this for the rest of my life.
2: Wow. <laughs> wow, well. well, you've, you've definitely got an aptitude for it.
1: That's great. Yeah, yeah. Like I've been on, you know, retreats for like days, silent retreats up mm-hmm. in the mountains and stuff. And it's just, it's just great. It's fantastic. And, and, and being able to bring it into my life, you know. What I'm able to apply, which I mean, I'm not always 100% successful at it, you know, where I can just look at life and not react to it and mm-hmm. and just kind of step away and be objective. and All right. Oh, this is what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. But I still get caught up sometimes. so I still get dragged through the mud and, and I get angry at ridiculous things or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say once. Once you're in that meditative state, and fear has fear and worry have dissipated, then when you have thoughts of of okay, I, now I know here's what I need to do, when you have that kind of thought, I think that does come from our deepest self, and mm-hmm. that's that's what I would call the soul voice speaking.
1: Yeah, and also when you sort of like mentioned this idea of soul voice, soul voice, or listening to that deeper part of ourselves. You know, I also play guitar and I love music hmm. and sometimes when I'm playing guitar, you know, I'll be listening to it and I'm like is that really me playing this? Hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or even like writing, like yeah. it probably happens to you with writing, right? I'm sure you've written yeah. things and gone back and read it and be like
2: wait, did I really write that? Yeah. Exactly. And I was having that feeling just this morning looking over the book living from the soul again thinking thinking wow i (laughs) i like this book or certainly it's a collaboration between me and emerson so i give him the credit for it but there is that feeling of wow this this passed through me and it's that's amazing
1: it is it's um i don't know like you know it's it's that muse doing the work and when i connect to that muse i know i'm on the right Mm -hmm. path
2: right um and i think i think music you know you talked about playing guitar that also Mm -hmm. taps into the the core of the universe where with everything being energy it's also all vibration and i think music is inherently spiritual that it connects with the the vibration that's at the heart of everything and that's
1: why i think music is so powerful and healing yeah i think that in general sound vibration like down to the scientific level is super Mm -hmm. important um one of the things i've recently also been experimenting with are these things called binaural beats where you play a frequency in one ear and a slightly different frequency in the other ear and it makes the brain connect and and, and you know you can get your brain waves into different states <laughs> is, mm-hmm. and and when you do that you're really you're literally changing your re, your reality and your view with with sound
2: mm-hmm. yeah that's fascinating and have you seen these videos where people put sand i think it's sand on a table uh, or
1: cymatics
2: and then play certain notes or frequencies and they take these amazing geometric shapes mm-hmm it's just phenomenal stuff and shows how how mysterious and wonderful the universe is i think we tend to have this split in society between a view that oh everything is everything is physical natural science explains everything and it's just boring and mm-hmm. dull. and then the the idea of sort of fairy tales and and religion and everything is magical mm-hmm. really i think we can we can bring those two together in, in something like like when we observe how sound vibrations can cause these amazing, incredibly intricate geometric shapes to form, we can think, wow, the world is both completely natural and completely magical at the same time.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that is something I, I cover quite a lot. Um, is, you know, is the, and, and I agree, like the idea of the semantics with, with the sound, which is usually... It's sacred geometry, basically. So, if you use yeah. sound, mm-hmm. sacred geometry, and, and color, all in in combination with each other, uh, it, it really gives us some so, some interesting tools to kind of experiment with to see how mm-hmm. they affect us.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's an intelligence there, you know, when you when we talk about sacred geometry i know coming up in in school when i would read about about scientific views on evolution and stuff the idea was that oh nature is purposeless there's no purpose or meaning in evolution it's just survival of the fittest over time and what when i I think when we take a deeper look at the science there's actually there is an intelligence in everything and behind everything, and that our human intelligence is an expression of that. You know, if there were no intelligence in the universe, how could intelligent creatures have ever been produced?
1: There does seem to be order. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be a hundred percent chaos. That is for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think we've been. We've been ill served by this this meme of of nature being purpose purposeless and evolution having no purpose or meaning to it. I think that uh, that's a mistaken assumption
1: One of the things you just used the word meme and in talking about this in the context um, mm-hmm. What do you think about the idea? And, and, and I think I, I kind of, when I first read the idea, I like, oh, this is really interesting. The idea of a mind virus. I mean, that's essentially what a meme is it's an idea mm-hmm. that sort of just infects people's minds.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: And, and changes their reality, their, their perception of, of, of what they see.
2: Right. And it, it's actually something Emerson talks about that I cover in the Secrets of Mind book. He says, you know, often idea, we don't get ideas so much as ideas get us. Yeah. And he was, he was ta- talking about being grabbed by an inspiration. And then, then this spreads to other people. And he talked about how an idea like uh, liberty or civil rights can come to define an entire era of history as that, as that idea spreads. Of course, then there are the negative side. In Emerson, <laughs> yeah. Then there's the negative side of. I see a, I see a lot of what I would call mind viruses going around, right now as far as politics and culture, and some ideas that, to me, seem crazy <laughs> that have spread rapidly and caused some concern.
1: Oh yeah, it, it it's amazing it, it, the idea of the mind virus couldn't be more applicable to any time, more so than than now, you know. Yeah. Pe- people... and it seems as,
2: of course, the internet uh, makes makes these ideas spread quicker.
1: Yes, it does. It definitely gives that idea more power. It makes it replicate quicker. To say. <laughs> You know, I, it's almost like what's more dangerous, you know, the uh, uh, the physical virus, the pandemic that we're experiencing or the mind virus side of it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and it too, definitely sort of feed each other too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I don't know where I'm going with that, but or how it applies yeah. to to what you've written about, but it's you know it, it's just interesting when it comes to to, to the you know the use of the mind in 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 being able to to use it, you know, for good or be able to use it for bad. Like 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 back in Emerson's day, you know, the people were looking for freedom, liberty, um, mm-hmm. all these all these great ideals, and and now it's almost like the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we could use another Emerson.
2: Yeah, and it could be that there's this tendency to trust to trust other people rather than looking inside and finding the answers mm-hmm. within. That could be a way to to tie together what was happening in Emerson's day, where Calvinism was the main theology. And then, with some of the, you know, perhaps that was a mind virus. <laughs> Calvinism, the, the idea that uh, God created the vast uh, amount of humanity to be damned in hell forever, uh-huh. and then He had this this small group of the elect. It's certainly a very harmful theological idea that was widespread at that time.
1: So, so how do you write? I I mean, do you ever switch like back and forth between, you know, the religion and the philosophies that you grew up with, um, to the ones that you're writing about now?
2: Um, do you, are you asking if I work on multiple books at a time
1: or? No, what I'm, what I'm asking is like, like 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 you mentioned that you grew up, you went to church a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and then it sounds like you kind of after after you got older, kind of realized like maybe and were exposed to different ideas that you kind of took your own direction.
3: Yeah.
1: And, um, you know, do, do you ever have, um, you know, like, like, like with the Bible in, in religion that you grew up in, like, like, did you see certain problems? Like you said, you mentioned that actually, that you saw certain problems in it, mm-hmm. you know, that, that it wasn't quite jiving correctly. It wasn't making sense. So, so you went elsewhere right. to find those answers, um, yeah,
2: and some of, some of that went into my novel, The Dirty Parts of the Bible, mm-hmm. as the, the main character is is struggling with his doubts. And there are parts of the book where he's reading the Bible and saying, you know, how, how can I believe this? As he goes through some of the stories in there. And so that was an influence. And then in all my my more recent books about Emerson and such, I do write a tiny bit about my previous beliefs in the introduction to these books, but mostly it's a motivating factor in the background. Like that's what's made me passionate about these topics is my life and experiences and how my ideas have changed over time. Because like, like growing up, I was taught that the Bible is is the infallible word of God that every bit of it is true, and that the Bible stories all literally happened, you know, whether it's Noah and the ark, Jonah and the whale, all the, the down to the death and resurrection of Jesus, that mm-hmm. these are all literal things that people, people did in history. And the, the big transformation that I went through or realization was realizing that actually all these stories are about ourselves, that these are, that the language of religious myth is to tell a story about someone else in, in history, but actually it's, it's a metaphor for something that can be true within ourselves. Right. And that's become a, a motivating factor of my more recent books.
1: Um, so so what, what would you consider yourself now? I like the word
2: tra- I, I like the word "transcendentalist" would <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because of Emerson being my, my intellectual hero. I would say Emerson and Joseph Campbell are my two greatest heroes in terms of books and ideas. And I, I like that term "transcendentalist," that the, the essence of life transcends the physical, yeah. and that. Uh, and it also ties in with meditation and such practices we can do to transcend the the ordinary
1: Hmm. I mean I would say like one of my favorite books actually is called um, I forget the name of it now but it has to do with transcendentalism anyway (laughs) um uh with 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 the beliefs that you grew up with do you you find yourself ever um like i i know people that have grown up in that environment and uh, you know their parents Mm -hmm. are still alive and they still have those type of beliefs and they they find themselves going back and forth with their parents and with their family and, and issues like that 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 have to be complicated
2: Yeah, it is tough when it comes to talking with my parents about it. I tend to avoid the subject for the most part. And my dad is usually the one who will bring it up. And because he's concerned about my salvation, he's concerned about me going to hell Mm -hmm. someday. So, And I can understand where he's coming from, but I also think that 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 sort of belief in hell, I think, is the most dangerous idea. It's the most unfortunate and harmful idea perhaps that Christianity has given us is this belief that that God will allow a large number of people to be or well anyone to be tortured eternally in hell based on their beliefs in this life. You know, so well if you believed the wrong thing in this life, you're out of luck. You're going to hell eternally. I think it's right. it's an extremely harmful Belief, But that's what causes, you know, people like my dad to have concern for me. So I, I understand that. And, you know, I appreciate that he loves me and is concerned. I just, uh, it makes it a difficult subject to talk about. And I, with my mom, I'll, lately, I've been giving her books like, uh, Wayne, Wayne Dyer is an author I enjoy, a self-help author in psychology. And he, he had a wonderful book called "Your Sacred Self" about the soul. So I'll, I'll sort of I'll slip my mom these more liberal books that talk about spiritual subjects, which she's familiar with reading about, but in a more liberal way.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, have your parents read your books?
2: Some of them. Um, yeah, I th- not not all of them, <laughs> I think, but some. Um, I tend to, you know, I tend to avoid conflict. So if yeah. I've written something that I know is more controversial, I won't, uh, I won't make a point of bringing it up. Today.
1: So, so you're not going to give out uh, everybody in your family uh, dirty parts of the Bible for Christmas? <laughs> no,
2: <laughs> no, that did, that did not go over too well. <laughs> Uh, that was. A, we had one discussion about that book when it when it when I first self published it, and uh, it has not been brought up again. <laughs>
1: so they don't have like a big poster of it or anything.
2: No, no. Oh, well, and I think I think it's actually. It can be taken as an attack on my past and how I grew up, mm-hmm. but I think re- really, I think it's an attempt to honor it and and make the make sense of it, take the best from it. Right. You know, because I did, you know, I did grow up, you know, going to church and hearing about things like love and forgiveness every week. There were a lot of valuable things mm-hmm. um, mixed mixed in with these beliefs like hell that I think are very harmful. And some of the teachings about sexuality and such, something caused a lot of harm and problems, but definitely a lot of good things were in there as well. And I want to honor that rather than attacking the whole thing.
1: Yeah. I, 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 I totally agree like with that view too. Um, I I think if anything, um, when it comes to the Bible in religion, there's a lot of misinterpretation, you know, because it's often taken literally when they they, 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 they take it from a literal view rather than uh, as if being an analogy and and really looking deeper at you know what is it they're talking about they're like they're talking about forgiveness like with like say with jesus or something like that you know it's, mm-hmm. to me it's mostly just about loving each other and, and forgiving you mm-hmm. know I, that that's the basic gist that i get from it more than anything else mm-hmm. yeah it is good things
2: yeah and i think with jesus when you When you look at the earlier Gospels, he doesn't claim to be uh, God or the only, he doesn't claim to be the only manifestation of God. I think that the true teaching of Jesus was that we're all sons and daughters, we're all children of God, we're all manifestations of, of the divine. I think that was the true teaching and it's been distorted over time. Those people uh, projected all divinity exclusively onto Jesus and then said, and if you don't believe Jesus was the only manifestation of God, then, you know, then you're going to burn in hell forever.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so so what? Do you, what is your take now, like, on, like, what happens after death? Do you, do you believe in a heaven or hell? Or do you believe in a, a reincarnation? Like, you know, like the energy just kind of just keeps on going or...
2: Yeah, I've become more sympathetic to reincarnation. It was something I never liked the idea or hadn't thought about it much before. It's beginning to make more sense to me, I would say. Certainly, I think that we return to our source, whatever that, and it's a mystery. (laughs) I don't think anyone has a clear 100% idea of what that source is, but I think that's the the way I would put it is we return to the source and that that's a good, a good thing. I, my suspicion is that, you know, we have all this fear of death. We think it's the worst thing that could possibly happen. And I have a suspicion that, that it might actually be the most beautiful and amazing experience that, that can possibly be had. And that, um, that what comes after it is wonderful, but it's also mysterious.
3: Hmm. So we're
1: talking, I've I have yeah.
2: I have really gotten into uh, I like hearing about near death experiences. Oh yeah, and, I've done
1: uh, tons of episodes on MTEs like and, and out of body yeah. experiences.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: If you want, if you ever want to go check out my podcast, I did an interview with, with a PMH Atwater. And she had three near-death experiences. Um, she, she's really like one of the forefathers of, of really bringing that topic, you know, you know, in, into the view of, of the general public. She, it's definitely a good episode to check out.
2: Great, yeah. I did. I've listened to a couple of your past episodes to get ready for this, but I'll have to look that one up. Yeah. So, I, and I, I do believe that all these type of near-death experiences and other experiences show that consciousness survives death that that, uh, death is not the the end but I also haven't come to a clear vision of oh here's exactly what happens after death I don't think it's possible to to know exactly
1: (laughs) well it is possible but it it has a a permanent result for the body (laughs) Mm -hmm you know like like I know for me like I, and I've talked about in some of my episodes a lot of them like I, I had a couple of years ago I had a an epileptic seizure and it lasted a really long time it was like 20 30 minutes long and and, and like I'll, I swear like I, I kind of just left my body and I was just sort of floating around in this vortex of color and sound and I wasn't afraid it was really kind of it was really nice actually I was like ah oh, this is great. This is so cool. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, of course it had to end and I came back, but I, it, it changed me in such a way. Like, like really when I'm not doing podcasts or, or, you know, working or doing other things that I have to do, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm reading books and experimenting with this out-of-body experience stuff. Cause I want to feel that mm-hmm. again without having to have the seizure.
2: Wow. All right. Wow. And there Things like, and you ask me, you know, what do I believe happens after death? I do think uh, I am pretty convinced. When people talk about things like a life review, mm-hmm. like looking back over your life, and perhaps with a there's this loving spirit guide who who guides you and shows you things about your life. I do tend to believe those stories. I just ultimately have to remain agnostic, but yeah. I am very very sympathetic and i've become more sympathetic to the idea of reincarnation and that we you know life is a roller coaster and it's terrifying at times but i think at the end maybe our souls say wow that was great i want to do that again
1: Mm -hmm. that's one of the interesting things about my interview with PMH. she died three times and she had three different experiences each time So it's really, really hard to nail down what a person is going to experience at the time of death, or 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 during any type of out of body experience.
2: And you asked about about whether about heaven and hell, and I I do see some sense in like an idea of a purgatory or the soul after death going through a cleansing process or realizing you know things that. That you did wrong in this life and i think for that could seem like a a torture that i could see that's where the idea of hell perhaps comes from but mm-hmm. it's a but i think it's a horrible distortion to say that hell is an eternal place of damnation for those who messed up in this life
1: right and, and also i know and, and this is a bad thing probably for him to say but the idea of heaven doesn't seem all that great either because i don't, I don't want to go <laughs> to a place start. where there's no sex drugs and rock and roll
3: <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> you know i mean that that's just, why just you, sounds boring
2: yeah yeah that's why you want to come back to be reincarnated and live it again down here
1: right or experience something else entirely different you know but you yeah. know either idea doesn't really they seem that appealing yeah
2: Right. I, I remember being terrified of the idea of heaven as a kid, because it was presented as, well, we're, we'll all be singing hymns before the throne of God eternally. Day, so day there will be day after day after day after day of no end where we'll be singing <laughs> to God. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty terrifying vision when you really think about it. Right.
1: And it is
2: funny. And I, oh, go ahead. And I think it, uh, I think also that the concept of the real concept of heaven would be something completely outside time. Mm-hmm. And because we only have this experience of space and time down mm-hmm. here, it's really not not something we can grasp. I think what it would be like to be outside of time.
1: I don't know. Like like, like my concept of heaven is probably like most people's concept of hell. You know, mm-hmm. it would be like rock and roll, hot girls, <laughs> you know, just, 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 just an oh, all out good time.
2: <laughs> That's it. At the beginning of the Dirty Parts of the Bible, the main character says that his, his goal in life is to, to make love to a woman before the rapture. And his, <laughs> his greatest, his greatest fear is that on his wedding night, Right when his wife is about to drop her dress, Jesus swoops down on a horse, takes <laughs> them up to heaven, and they have to sing hymns to God eternally. <laughs>
1: that's, that's classic.
2: So I think my character is right in line with your thoughts.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I might be the living part of your character. <laughs> <laughs> um. With the Stoicism type of stuff, uh, have, have you ever read a, like, any Kurt Vonnegut type of stuff?
2: Um, what's that word? I'm not even familiar uh, with
1: well, Have you read any Kurt Vonnegut?
2: Oh, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, yes, I... Oh, I, there was one of his I enjoyed, Cat's Cradle. Mm-hmm. I think I enjoyed quite a bit. I thought that was very clever. And then I... I read another one or two of his books and thought they were they were very cynical and depressing, mm-hmm. I thought, and had a very despairing view. So that was uh so I couldn't take any more of that. <laughs> I, I, I there was one where where every character he he sees as a machine programmed to do mm-hmm. things, so that there's sort of an idea that people don't have free will. And it was something I strongly disagreed with, but he was a brilliant and imaginative
1: writer yeah yeah it's the book that that my favorite book by him is definitely breakfast of champions hmm. and, and, and it does it really sort of falls into like that that stoic type of view you know you know, that that you know i guess like emerson had or uh, i don't know like, like would you consider nietzsche stoic
2: I'm not not much of an expert on him. I've listened to the Great Courses series on Nietzsche, which uh, improved my view of him. (laughs) or corrected a lot of misunderstandings that people tend to have about Nietzsche. But I'm not familiar with him enough to to know about the influence of Stoicism, Nietzsche. Right.
1: And the other author that I think a lot of times is, is associated with Stoicism, and you've written a book about him, is Mark Twain.
2: You cut up for a second there. Were no. you talking about Marcus Aurelius?
1: No, no. Mark Twain.
2: Oh, Mark Twain. Yeah, you're,
1: uh, Mark Twain on masturbation.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a... Yeah, Mark Twain gave a, a speech to a men's club in Paris. He gave this hilarious parody speech on masturbation in the 1800s. And it was a, it was suppressed and went unpublished for a very long time. But uh, I I designed a book with a lot of humorous old illustrations to go with this this speech of his,
1: and, and it's just all, all these topics are sort of connected to like, like I remember like as a kid when I discovered masturbation, I, I thought I was going <laughs> to hell for it. I
2: was like, shit, yeah.
1: I'm going to hell because I like this,
2: right. Yeah, I think that was my strongest sense of sin. Like, I grew up hearing about original sin and such. And, you know, I was a good kid. I didn't go around doing bad things. But then, you know, having a sex drive and lust and masturbation, that was my the first thing where I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I am a sinner. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's what—that's one of the terrible things that the church voices on people, that, that guilt does a lot of harm.
1: It does, because I remember sometimes thinking like, well, I'm already a sinner, so I guess I could just do whatever I want now, because <laughs> all bets are off. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh. You took the the opposite approach to me. I would do things like to, you know trying to go. I would go a whole month. I think about a month was as long as I went mm-hmm. without <laughs> I would. Uh, yeah, like, like I me, I pray, just went like in a complete pray and pray.
1: I went in a complete opposite direction. I said, "Well, I guess that's it. It's over. So I'm just going to do." all kinds of bad things and you know i just became a bad kid you know just be you know lighting shit on fire stealing stuff <laughs> you know and, and, and just just do you know doing whatever bad things i could come up with just in my mind it was fun at that by then because i'm like oh, i'm going to hell anyway so i must well have as much fun as i can with all this bad shit
2: well Wow, well, I could see you writing a memoir called uh, From Masturbation to Meditation.
1: <laughs> I think I've already kind of written that book. Like in my book, in my Enlightenment Guaranteed, I kind of do talk a lot about that stuff. It's sort of my journey from, you know, just just being crazy to, to being able to find myself, just being able to sit still and enjoying it. Hmm. <laughs> great uh so have have i covered everything or is there anything that you want to talk about that i have missed
2: you certainly covered a lot of ground there even bringing in the masturbation at the end that's impressive (laughs) i did did not expect us to take that direction
1: no (laughs) it always comes down to masturbation (laughs)
3: <laughs>
2: uh,
1: it's one of the funnest most harmless activities that a person can have <laughs>
2: it does it does tie in with dirty parts of the bible so definitely a, definitely appropriate subject
1: yeah I, I mean it's one of the things I always wondered and it has always bothered me actually about the bible and about religion in general it's like why do they care what I do with my Johnson?
2: Mm, yeah.
1: It doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah, and there's you know the story of Onan in the Old Testament, who people interpreted that he was killed for spilling his semen on the ground. God struck him down. So that's where they that's where they came up with this idea that masturbation was a sin worthy of death. <laughs>
1: crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know it doesn't make sense oh man yeah. uh where, where before we wrap this up where can my listeners find you
2: yeah my website is sam and you'll find all my books there i've dabbled a little in music and songwriting and that's on there and artwork as well great so yes yeah, sam and i Enjoy hearing from people too. If anyone uh, wants to send me an email, my email is on my website.
1: Awesome. And what I'll do is I will post a link in the notes of this episode to your website and I'll also post it to um, your Amazon page as well.
3: Because
1: mm-hmm. um, all your books are available on a Kindle so people can just download them and check them out after they listen yeah. to this.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks.
1: All right, and Thanks for being on.
2: Yeah, Gary, I appreciate it. It's
1: been wonderful to talk. You too. I'm just going to play the outro and we'll wrap it up.
0: Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.